Hey, I'm MJ Taller, also known as a black wine guy. I went from being a totally obsessed wine newbie to becoming the world's first ever African-American fine and rare wine auctioneer in less than three years. In this show, I'll be talking to the mavericks, the philosophers, the players, and the deep thinkers who inhabit the world of wine. They'll share their experiences on how they made it, but more importantly, how they failed and got back up again. So grab a glass and let's get to it. This is the Black Wine Guy Experience. What's up? It's your boy, MJ. Welcome to the Black Wine Guy Experience. My guest today is the director of winemaking at Cliff Lady Vineyards in Napa Valley, Chris Tynan. Uh, Chris is self-taught and has an avant-garde approach to winemaking that pays tribute to both tradition and innovation. His exacting philosophy of only employing low-yield vines from select sites with minimal intervention in the winery ensures that each bottle expresses the distinct nuances of each site, block, and vintage, or terroir. Uh, Chris brings his wine career, began his wine career rather, in the vineyard, working summers doing irrigation management for vineyards across Napa and Sonoma. And in 2006, he became the assistant winemaker at the prestigious Colgan Cellars on Pritchard Hill. At Colgan, Christopher worked with uh, vintner Ann Colgan, winemaker Allison Tazier, and renowned vineyard manager David Abreu. And in 2012, Chris brought his wealth of knowledge and meticulous attention to detail to Cliff Lady Vineyards. Welcome, Chris. Thank you for having me. Uh, so glad you are here. Glad we could make this happen. Uh, tell me about the wines you brought this afternoon. We've got a little selection of uh, some of the things that we do here at Cliff Lady. And uh, the first wine in your glass is the 2022 Sauvignon Blanc. Mm. Um, labeled Sauvignon Blanc, but there's 22% Semillon in there. Um, it's all barrel from, uh, fermented, a little stainless, but mostly barrel. Um, we buy a few new barrels every year, uh, all French oak. Uh, but most of it's uh, once, twice, or third-use barrels. So we, re I really love the wines of uh, the great white wines of Bordeaux, and that's kind of an influence on this wine. Obviously, it's California; it's got more sunshine, yeah. and it's got all yeah. that lusciousness. But uh, I definitely love what Semillon does to Sauvignon Blanc, and it's when I came on board, I, I brought in more Semillon every year. Nice, yeah. nice. I I love white Bordeaux. Um, I love it all, but like it's, it's like you know you get on these things, Chandra. You're like you're on Sancerre, or you know, I'm rarely on New Zealand Sauvignon Blanc, but I'm on Sancerre, or I'm on you know, or, or something else. But then you come and you have that white Bordeaux, like I said, and you have that Simeon, or that Sauvignon Gris, or that Muscadel, and it just, and then it's the barrel age yeah. elevates it. I love it. There's uh, always a little Didier Dagano and whispering in my ear too when I'm making this wine. I really love his wines from Loire Valley, and they've been a big influence on on, on making this wine as well. That's awesome, man. Awesome. And 2022, so this is fresh, fresh juice. Yeah, it's, <laughs> I just got bottled like two weeks ago, so it's it's hot off the bottling lines. But we wanted to, uh, it's about to go in the market in the next couple of weeks, so we thought we'd bring something new. We're sold out of the, our older vintage, so we wanted to give you the first taste. Awesome, man. Thanks so much. All right, man, so I like to start at the beginning. Uh, so where are you from? I was born in New York, um, Mount Kisco Hospital, and I spent my first two years of life at, in Peekskill. So my... Um, Technically, I'm a New Yorker. My dad's from Jackson Heights, Queens. Um, and he, when he was in the Army after college, he met a Texas girl, my mom. And so when we were two, when I was two, um, we moved to Houston, Texas. And I really grew up in Houston and uh, went to college in Texas. And um, that was the first 18, tw 22 years of my life were, were all in Texas. 
So Houston, 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 Houston. So like, what what was it was uh, when you were growing up in Houston? Was it eighties, nineties? Oh, what was what, what was like the time period, man? Let's let's talk about Houston culture when you were growing up. Uh, we, we moved there in probably nineteen seventy eight. Okay. So you know, like you hit the eighties. Yeah, exactly. Eighties, eighties so, in Houston. So you'd be fourteen. Okay. Yeah. So you were like, yeah, the eighties. Yeah, you were like, yeah. Okay. Yeah. There's Akeem again. Like he was in U of H. That's right. He went to University of Houston. Exactly. Yeah. Fly Slamma Jamma was there. Uh, was there? That's ta- right. Clyde line. Drexler. And who was the third person? It was uh, Lajuan Drexler. Oh, um, Ralph Sampson. He, he was. He was. No, he Ralph Sampson was Virginia. That's um, right. It was. Oh my God. He's a coach at Rutgers now. His son just played for. Oh my God. What was his name? Ah, uh, I know. I, it's on the tip of my tongue. But yeah, Fly Fly Slamma Jamma was so exciting it was um and i'm a little bit older than you so like i remember like those final fours and like those tight shorts and and the afros <laughs> <laughs> um but houston like i didn't know this until recently like literally literally um uh, i didn't realize that houston uh, it's gonna sound stupid but like and recently it could have been like i don't know i don't know when's the last hurricane but like that houston's like on the gulf of mexico right so like like, so yeah. Like, did you guys have like here? I grew up in Jersey Shore. I grew so people from New York would go. Like, did did you guys go to like the islands off of uh, the coast uh, in the Gulf or Galveston like? was like the the local closest to the to the ocean, the Gulf of Mexico there. That and that's you know a popular spot to go and um, and but Houston, you know, people don't realize it's it's been the fourth largest city in the country for, for a long forever. time. <laughs> And it's a really diverse town. I mean, I went to school with uh, with a diverse group of kids, and even though we're Texas, we're a pretty international city. I mean, it's it was a great place to grow up. Um, the weather is terrible. It's very hot and humid, mm-hmm. and, and I don't miss that at all being in Napa, California. It's <laughs> probably the best weather. Um, but it, you know, Santa, bad, Barbara, bad, bad, Santa Barbara, I would argue with you, but you know. <laughs> bad, bad weather builds character. So I feel like that's, you know, growing up in Texas, you, you deal with heat and you deal with cold and, and tornadoes and hurricanes and all mosquitoes and all sorts of stuff. So it builds character for sure. Yeah. It, it toughened me up a little bit. But yeah, Houston's great, a great place to grow up. And, um, and uh, yeah. Yeah, you were saying you mentioned uh, that was, I think that's kind of like the, the foray, foray. It was like watching, you know, I'm getting old. I'm like, am I getting senile? But like, you just watching even shows like Diners, Drivers, and Dives. Like, like you said it. Like, there's a huge Vietnamese population. Yeah. In Houston, so like you guys have like uh, Viet Mex, Viet Tex Mex. Like, there's I've heard like the food scene is kind of ridiculous. It True? is. Yeah. I mean, I'm some of my best meals growing up were at Vietnam, Vietnamese restaurants, and um, the culture there is you know just huge and. Um, you name it, even just not just Me- Mexico, but uh, all over Central America and South America, we just had a huge melting pot of I Spanish think we forget cultures. that in the Northeast, right? Cause yeah. Like, like you're so close to, I mean, you, you got people coming from Guatemala, you're just all over, just all over Latin America. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, that's really cool. Um, and uh, any siblings? I have two older brothers. Oh. How how old? Are, how much older are they? Well, because <laughs> I'm the, I'm the surprise kid, so I'm five years younger than my two older brothers. So I was the happy accident. I'm sure. I'm sure my parents never told me that, but I, I yeah. kind of know. <laughs> 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 the whoops. You 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 were the um, so you got beat up a lot. I did, <laughs> I, and that was another character building. Having two older brothers to to whoop, whoop your. You can say ass. Okay, you can, you can, perfect. You can, you can. Don't give me license to cuss. You can, cu- you can, man. I listen. I it's fucking cuss all the time. 
So it's really it's really okay. I'm from New Jersey. I told you it's fine. Um, so so you got two older brothers. Um, you guys play sports. Uh, I played soccer my entire life, so I was a real you know, big soccer player and played through high school and um, uh, really enjoyed that. That was a big, big, big part of my life for a long time. But wasn't good enough to, you know, join. There wasn't there wasn't a lot of opportunity, especially when I graduated in high school in 1993. There wasn't a, there wasn't a major league soccer. There wasn't any sort of you know professional teams. It was college, but even the, even those programs were pretty small. So yeah, yeah. yeah. Um, so. Did you? Where did you go to school? You said you went to school in Texas as well. Yeah, I went to a little college south of Austin called Southwest Texas State University. It's now called Texas State University. It's uh, on the San Marcos River, beautiful little place in the hill country. Um, our claim to fame is that London Johnson went to his undergraduate degree there. So we have a president that graduated from our college. <laughs> so we we tell that to as many people as we possibly can. Oh my God! That's probably <coughs> the, George Strait is the next most famous person to graduate. I, country singer. George that's Strait. yeah. I know what George Strait is man. <laughs> I'm a little bit country. I'm a little bit rock and roll. Um, um, so it's funny. I had Adam Howard Lee on the podcast a couple weeks ago. It hasn't dropped yet. But he also grew up in Texas. Mm -hmm. um, and he shared a story. Uh, his dad worked for the state of Texas, did something environmental. Like He was like the head of the environmental department of Texas. And uh, basically, they had a run-in with Lyndon Johnson and his dad actually hated Lyndon Johnson. Like, that was the only time he didn't vote Democrat was when Lyndon Johnson was running because <laughs> Johnson, like, did a total, like, dick move and, like, got uh, a state employee fired. Like, mm -hmm. and so, um, so yeah, that's, that's, your, that's your alma mater, just churning out, you know, <laughs> churning out guys who, um, so did he ever, uh, did he ever, was he alive when you went there? No. Okay, he was, yeah, he was long long yeah. 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 That would have been cool to hear him speak, though. Yeah, that would have been. Yeah. You know? Yeah, you would, I don't, he wasn't a guy that you wanted to cross, I think. Like no, that's what I'm saying. That yeah. was the whole point. Like, like the story Adam told, was it was pretty funny. And, and, like, the guy actually didn't even cross him. He was just doing his job. And Lynn's like, yeah, do you know who I am? <laughs> <laughs> um, but uh, that's cool. And is that, um, is that, Sam Mark, is that near... Um, it's kind of halfway between Austin and San Antonio. Yeah, there's this uh, movie, Boyhood. Is that like kind of the town, San Marcos? Is that the town? Oh, that's a good question. Link letter, because the, yeah. yeah, the woman was working at a college, like in San Marcos or junior college, something. So it's, something like that. Yeah. yeah, I don't. Th I don't know if it was filmed there or not. Yeah. but um, um, yeah, I, I'm not not sure. That's it's been a long time since I've seen that movie. But and then yeah, so like I like we're gonna get to wine, but like so we got Houston Rockets. You got to be an Astros fan, right? Ooh, okay, so that's where my dad's uh, <laughs> that's where my dad's influence. So my dad's from Jackson Heights, Queens, and when we when we went to see the Astros game, it was either to see the Mets or the Yankees. Um, he was actually, I think he was a he goes way back because mm -hmm. he's a huge New York sports fan. So I think he was he might have been a Giants fan, New York Giants fan, way back in the day. Um, and so you know that was kind of like where I first got, got my first taste of, you know, like his buddies would go with us. They were all from New York. Oh, yeah. Italian guys. Uh, hey, yo. <laughs> <Mr>. <laughs> I went to an Astros game with Mr. Guarneri and Mr. Nash and my dad. And, like, you know, Texas pretty reserved, pretty polite. Mm -hmm. There's some clapping in the stadium. But, like, then you get a couple New Yorkers yeah. that are, like, you yeah. know, really being New Yorkers yeah. at the ball game and yeah. yelling at players and yeah. stuff. And you know, Yogi Berra was one of the base coaches, I think, for, for the Astros at some point. And they had just given him grief and stuff. No, maybe not Yogi. He was pretty he – yeah, he, he was pretty beloved. But yeah, yeah. some of the other players that uh, – oh, man, 
it's embarrassing. Like, oh my god, dad, that's so dad. funny. Yeah, your dad's a New Yorkers <laughs> are you know they're not Jersey guys, but like you, but uh, they're cut from a different mold. There, for there's, sure. there's this, yeah, I think, yeah, definitely. That's yeah. funny. So, um, oh, I was actually say that's interesting because. I would love to know what your dad would think about how, um, you know, Reggie Jackson now works with the Astros organization. Oh, is that right? Yeah. Yeah. Um, long time Yankee. Yep. 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 And, and uh, working with the organization and actually great, a great documentary about Reggie on Amazon Prime. Just check it out if you like baseball, if you just like sports. Um, cool. I mean, we did root for the Astros at times when, but I was, uh, I really got into the Mets like right around 1984. Uh, which was a great oh, time. Oh, that was a good time. Because yeah, yeah, yeah. I got to see, um, I got to see them. Doctor K. In '86, I think I got to, s- I got to see Dwight the Gooden. Cole crew uh, beat the Astros in one in a playoff game in the Astrodome, and I, I was probably the only New York Mookie. fan there. It was oh, the best team ever. Oh my God, my, the uh, Astrodome. Uh, oh my God, that's going way back. Yeah. Oh God, so you grew <laughs> up watching the Houston Oilers? Yeah. Not the Texans, the Houston Oilers. The best team ever, Houston Oilers. Oh man. Oh my. I miss them. Who? Bum Phillips and, and Bum Earl Campbell. Bum Phillips. Legends, man. Good oh guys. Good no, guys. I know, but I remember like he was like he wore the ten gallon cowboy hat on the <laughs> yes. you know, and then Earl Campbell Earl Campbell was a beast. He was. He would just run people over. He would carry people. This is back when they had those tearaway jerseys. Like he's he changed his jersey like five times a game. It would just rip off. Yeah. Oh my God. He was uh, a hero. I mean, he's a legend in, in Houston and, and all of Texas. Oh, really, that's right. He's oh, Warren Moon. Warren Moon, great great oh. QB. Oh God, he can throw the ball. So oh far. my God. Yeah, yeah that's fun. See, I'm like I'm from Jersey, so we don't have we don't have teams. <laughs> 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 so, but um, but oh my God, that must be fun. Yeah, that's that's some nostalgia for you. Definitely. Um, so what did you major in <clears throat> at university? Oh, wow. I was a coveted English major with an art history minor. So highly unemployable, highly sought after after graduating. <laughs> why you're in the wine <laughs> <laughs> So naturally, after graduating, I, was, I ended up uh, uh, waiting tables. And I, I'd moved to Santa Fe, New Mexico after graduating okay. college because I was, uh, thought I might want to be a painter, fine art painter. Uh, and then I started waiting tables for to Chris kind of pay O'Keefe. the bills. <laughs> Lots of jo- not yes, exactly. Um, and then uh, ended up running a restaurant there in Santa Fe. And one of my jobs is buying wine, and that's kind of my my entree into wine was learning about wine. You know, when you're a wine buyer for a restaurant, you really get a lot of attention because there's five, six salespeople coming by the restaurant every week, t- tasting you on wines from all over the world, and. Um, Man, it was like early to have an early education in wine like that. It was it was pretty great because um, someone that didn't really know anything. My my parents enjoyed wine from time to That's time. That's what I asked you. Was there was there ever wine on the table at your house? I, you know, when my dad would buy a bottle, probably for like Thanksgiving or Christmas, and if there was family over and stuff, and it would get opened. I don't know if anybody drank it because I, I know it didn't get it didn't it didn't get all done in the first day because. You'd see that bottle in the fridge for like a month, and I'm sure it tasted it tasted horrible after that. Oh but, man! But they liked my dad was you know he worked in um, international sales, and so he traveled the world, and he he appreciated the finer things in life, especially good food and good wine. Um, but it wasn't super part of our life. We didn't he didn't there was no cellar or or mm-hmm. anything like that. So that early education, um, working in the restaurant business, was kind of instrumental for for getting me into it and having some some of those aha bottles uh, and saying whoa. This is this is what wine can taste like, and you know, having your mind blown in that way um, early on was great, and that that's what led me to Napa in 2002. I thought I 
I can work in the restaurant business anywhere if, if, I, if I need to, but right. I really want to go to Napa and see if this is you know, something that I really enjoy. Um, and I think I probably made some homemade wine. And I know I did. I made some homemade wine in Santa Fe and a little carboy in the corner. And it tasted like homemade wine tasted like made shit. in New Mexico yeah. and a carboy in the corner. There's um, nothing <laughs> worse than a friend that has homemade wine they want to give you. You're like, oh, <laughs> nobody wants to drink homemade wine. They're like, oh, you want to see a sad face. Give some give someone a bottle of homemade wine. What, what kind of grapes? Where would you get the grapes for that? Uh, you back in the like, I think I went to a, like a brewery wine shop mm. kind of thing that sold like homebrew kits, and they had they would have like jugs of uh, juice. You could buy a Chardonnay juice, and you throw it in a in a little carboy, a little a little tank, and and add the yeast, and it ferments. It smells really good. Fills up the house with that beautiful fermentation. Yeah. But it's constant. You know, it's just it's juice that's been in a bag for. Who knows how long in the in the in the brewery store in Santa Fe for for a couple <laughs> summers and oof, it was bad, but it was cool. I mean, I got to see the whole process and that was the important part. But um, but yeah, I, as soon as I moved to Napa, I took some classes in the little junior college there um, and to get some background on chemistry and some simple wine stuff. Um, Napa has their own junior college that has their own vineyard and their own winery, so that was kind of a cool thing and that got me enough. Um, of knowledge and experience that I could start applying for internships and that's what I did in 2004 I started applying and, <laughs> and, and I ended up at Kane uh, up on Spring Mountain was my first first vintage and the first week I was like this is what I want to do I just knew right away like this is great this is this is amazing it's perfect this is perfect for me I found what I want to do it was that that fast like this is this is awesome damn yeah I'm still trying to figure that out um I want I, we'll get to, I want to go uh, back a little bit. So you you said you moved to New Mexico because you want to be an artist, but there's always something more to the story. Was there was there was there a girl involved? Like like I mean why would I mean I, okay and we know Georgia Key, but like there's usually every every wine story there's there's, there's some type of romance involved like the first move. Not this one. This was more about like okay I got to get out of Texas because. Okay. I want like four seasons and okay. you know, Santa Fe's high desert. So there's a lot, you know, snow and, yeah. uh, and mountains. Okay. And, um, so it was just, you know, Santa, a lot of people don't realize Santa Fe is like the same altitude as, uh, um, uh, same elevation, sorry, as Denver. So it's, you know, high desert, but high elevation. We get snow, we get a fall, we get a spring and it's nice. And the weather's really, really, it's nice. pretty, I've drove through there once. It's pretty spectacularly beautiful. It is. Yeah. Um, so that the weather there wasn't chasing a girl okay, this, this okay. time it wasn't there chasing wasn't a girl the involved but yeah the, um, the weather was my mistress I think <laughs> okay cool and 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 you had shared about you started waiting tables you ended up running the restaurant you met a lot of you were the buyer so you're getting lots of attention because the coveted buy the glass is so good when you have your sales rep um, and. Uh, was it something that you tasted where you said, or you, you know, like, I guess was Napa just the only place for you to go? Because I mean, there, I mean, there were other regions. There was Santa Barbara was coming on then. You know, there not was not. I mean, a little bit, but yeah. not really. I mean, most. I mean, Napa seemed the most uh, attainable. I mean, okay. I mean, obviously, I loved wines from France that I was tasting and stuff, yeah. but that seems uh, daunting to Do you speak someone French. No, I yeah, mean, I grew up in Houston. I, yeah, I took that's Spanish because it's Spanish, Spanish, Spanish. Yeah, that's, Spanish. there's the rub, right? Yeah, like exactly. Um, and 
there was, you know, another another formative uh, thing that got me into wine too is one year I, I took some time, to about three months off, and went to Spain. Okay. And I walked this thing called the Camino de Santiago. Um, it's this religious pilgrimage that goes from the border of France to west to the west end of uh, northwest part of Spain, in Santiago de Compostela. I didn't do it for any religious reasons, but I thought it would be a cheap way to walk across Spain. And ended up drinking a lot of wine along the way in every little region. Some of the best bottles I had on that trip were just not even labeled. They were just from the local co-op and from the local grape. And I mean, that really was like, oh, food and wine. And like, it was, that was definitely very formative in my, um, my kind of trying to figure out what I wanted to do. And um, I think Martin Sheen made a movie about that or something. Yeah, like he's, he's a little bit, yeah. I don't, okay, think it was very good. <laughs> I don't think it was on anybody's uh, best list, but. But that's where I heard. I mean, and that shit's like it's like seven hundred miles. It's like far, right? It's like far. It's seven hundred and twenty yeah. kilometers. This is about four hundred and something, okay, yeah. four hundred forty <sighs> miles. It took me about twenty eight days to walk, but it was it was quite quite great. And I don't know if I saw his, but there, there's also been other documentaries. But like, like you said, like there's these wonderful little restaurants. Like there's places you stop, and like and and so like, and the people know people are like you said, it wasn't a pilgrimage per se for you. Um. But I love that some of the best bottles you had, and they were probably like in little tumblers too. They don't have Zoltos. A lot of times, you're right. Needles. <laughs> yeah, very few times where there is anything more than just like a water glass or something like that. Yeah, yeah. Um, that's pretty badass. So, um, yeah, you go from the Pyrenees, you sort of winds up there in um, north of Pamplona, then you go through Rioja, um, and through when I fell in love with Bierzo, which is just east of uh, Galicia. Um, with the Mencia grape, which is amazing. There's some amazing wines coming out of there, out of Spain with that grape. Um, mm -hmm. And then Al your reward when you get to the end in Santiago is Albarino. So there's just tons of Albarino and octopus, as, as much as much as you can eat. And those two wines uh, go together so well. Oh, that, yeah. That was one of the, like, oh, my gosh, yeah. That's one of those moments where you, like, you got the food and wine pairings were just, like, imprinted because you're getting that. You got the, you got the you know, octopus out of the ocean. You got the, the salinity from the from, from the... Albarino yeah. just, you know, together, you know, just together, together. Like sometimes they contrast, but sometimes it's salt on salt and it works so good. And exactly. You, you said it perfectly. And even every other region of Spain, the, the food and the wine grape and the flavors just, they were just seemed like, they, I mean, they've evolved together, right? Yeah. So they just seem to taste, they just match perfectly. Whatever they're growing there is what that matches what they're, what they're drinking and um, the produce and the wine just kind of seamless that was quite quite impressive to me yeah yeah and so then you you you, uh, you end up in Napa I think you said it was 2002 you ended up in Napa <coughs> um, and you what is uh, irrigation management <laughs> <laughs> uh, so I knew uh, like, it's, it's, like for me that's like a watering hose man. <laughs> <laughs> Well, because um, in Napa, basically, we don't get any rain from usually mid-April until... It did this year. You got snow. We, yeah, it's, it's <laughs> exactly. Yeah. Generally speaking, we I have know. a Mediterranean climate, so yeah. we don't get anything from <laughs> April to um, hopefully November, um, so we don't get the grapes rained on. But um, that means we're irrigating our vines, unlike uh, France and Spain. Yeah, exactly. Well, Mother Nature irrigates their their vines throughout yeah. the year, where we don't get any rain. So, um, so vineyards. Uh, I worked for two summers. I worked for an irrigation management uh, company. They they worked for vineyards all over Napa, Sonoma, um, and you know, we're basically measuring the soil, um, the water in the soil, 
and we're taking measurements on vines and watching vine growth, looking for pests, um, and we're giving recommendations to uh, wineries and vineyard owners on whether they should irrigate, whether they shouldn't. Um, and so that was another great education. But another luck, I lucked into that because- Yeah, I was gonna ask, because <coughs> you majored like in art history and English, so how do you work, like that's some science, that's gotta do something with science, watering, making sure it's right. PhD it's a low skill that. level, I mean, as far <laughs> as on the winemaking, like you just, you're, you're driving a lot. Uh, for me it was great because I got to see some of the best, best vineyards in Napa and Sonoma. But I also got to see a lot of the worst vineyards in Napa Sonoma and, and the different different farming practices hmm. that were going on. Like some of the vineyards were just, you know, highly dependent on chemicals and, and fertilizers and all sorts of stuff. And they just looked awful and, and disgusting. And then some of the best uh, growers and farmers that we work with that were more organic and um, were gentle on the soil and the vines. Um, those, those were where the best grapes were coming from. So it was quite eye-opening um, experience in that. And I just got to see the the breadth and depth of Napa and Sonoma as well, from north to south and east to west, and little hidden gems that you never would know were there, um, some amazing little places. So that was quite, um, you know, I, just, um, I was lucky to luck into that job. It was kind of, it was low-paying and your grunt work, and but I knew it kind of, it was pushing me towards, you know, ultimately what I wanted to do. And that was, um, I wanted to make something at the highest level. You know, I kind I of had that. the experience in the restaurant in Santa Fe where we're, on a good night we'd be a pretty pretty good restaurant, but on a bad night we'd be like, yeah, we're kind of a, <laughs> not, not so great. Yeah. So something was in me. I was like, okay, I want to I want to work in I want to I want to see what that top level of, of winemaking is, and that's kind of what I was I was searching for. That's when I was kind of like, okay, I'll pay my dues for a while, I'll make no money, and yeah. and hopefully that'll pay off with with a chance to work for someone that's doing it at the highest level. So what was the classes you took at the community college in Napa? Um, they, they have basic wine chemistry. So you're, you just learn about pH and TA and um, uh, sanitization and you know, basic kind of wine product. There's a wine, they have their own winery, so there's a lot of wine production stuff. Mm -hmm. How do you distem grapes? You know, working with that kind of stuff and basic, basic stuff that goes on in the winery production side. Um, there's some wine tasting classes and um, wine appreciation classes, and I took a lot of viticulture classes, as many as I could, um, because there was we had our own vineyard. They let the students out there and hack on the vines and <laughs> do some pruning and stuff like that. And yeah. you know, it's a student vineyard, so if you accidentally cut off too much, you're I not, mean, you're not gonna ruin. Yeah, I mean, you're not gonna ruin the vintage, but it's <laughs> it'll grow back. <laughs> yeah, it's, it's, it's not. It's uh, fortunately, it's not that hectic, right? You're there to learn. Exactly. Um, what did your what did like your family think like of this pivot, right? Like, first of all, what did they think when you were just even after graduating, going into hospitality at all? Because I know some families are like, what? Why we, we didn't have to go to college to become a waiter. <laughs> uh, my, I was lucky to have parents that were pretty supportive. Like they, if, if you were doing, you were trying to figure it out, I think like they were, they were all behind, behind me. Um, as long as I was paying my own bills and everything, <laughs> I wasn't asking for money. Yeah. Um, and I kind of, I've always been a little more independent and, uh, and uh, I just, I don't know, I had a passion, something in me out of college. I was like, I want to figure out what I want to do in life. Cause I don't want to, I don't want to be 75 and, you know, have regrets and anything like that. I just knew that that was something in me. I didn't know what I wanted to do exactly, but mm -hmm. I was definitely curious about finding it. Um, so you land at Kane is your first job real wine job. What mm -hmm. was your uh, what was your first kind of responsibilities there? And and actually because I know I have I have listeners of all different levels in this uh, wine business. Um, tell people about a little bit about Kane, a little about Spring Mountain and then Kane 5 which was their Bordeaux 
uh, blend. So, yeah. Yeah, that again, another kind of lucky, um, lucky break for me um, is working with uh, Chris Howe, um, the winemaker up at Kane. Um, he just a real intellectual, very smart, um, and their their harvest. I uh, was the lab intern. They have a very small lab, so I would help out the enologist, um, do simple tasks, pHs and TAs and free sulfurs and stuff like that. Um, and they didn't really let me work with the grapes as, as much because well, I was still figuring out I was very green. Um, they were probably really patient with me too, because I thought I, w- I came in a little cocky, because I, you know, I had some, I had a couple of Napa Valley College classes <laughs> under my belt, and I thought I knew a lot about wine. And you kind of, you, uh, if you're smart enough, you realize that you know these guys have been doing it for a long time; they yeah. know a, a thing or two. Um, and then Chris is just uh, him and Francois, who who work with him as well. Um, they just had a very, f- it was a very French harvest. Like we would work in the morning and sort grapes do the pump overs and then we'd take a two-hour lunch with wine and great food we'd cook we'd cook lunch and you know it was about winemaking but you know they really taught me that it's about people Mm -hmm. and um and respecting people and the people that have come to work with us well the french interns and um and just getting to know each other and it's it's something about doing the job and doing it right but also you know enjoying time together and, and really when we were making wine to, to enjoy and yeah. it's, it's, all, it's all about pleasure. So let's enjoy it while we're making it. So that was, that was great. And that really informed me uh, early on. You know, I think a lot of people um, that kind of are jaded about the wine business, they start off at like a factory kind of winery where they're just doing one thing the entire year. And they like, this is winemaking. They're dumping in a bunch of additives and stuff and they get disillusioned early on. So I was lucky to get into a very small winery like yeah. th- and worked for, for Chris. Um, and, um, it, and that was a great, uh, a great stepping stone to, to con, you know, continue on. So, um, uh, and I can't say enough about Kane and, and my time there. Yeah. Uh, Spring Mountain, like so, like there's all these mountains. You got Howell Mountain, Spring Mountain, Mount Leader. You could you go on and on and on, but like I think Spring Mountain. What what is uh? Because I've had and there's also Spring Mountain Vineyards that makes really good wine too. But like, what is it about? Um, what was it, what is it, have you noticed, we haven't got ahead yet, but like you've worked at a lot of different places, obviously there's different soils and sun exposures and irrigation, but like, what is it about mountain fruit that makes it so sought after and so structurally age-worthy? Oh, great question. So I think, you know, you get the line from Mount Veeder, Spring Mountain, Diamond Mountain going north, um. I think all those wines kind of share the um, the fact that they're above the fog line, okay. and um, so it's um, and they get a lot more rain on that side of the valley than they do on like say the Pritchard Hill side. Mm-hmm. So in the the winter time, they're getting you know 10, 15 more inches of rain coming down because the 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 moisture that's moving off the coast and heading east is uh, that mountain that ridge is you know collecting all that water. So it's a little cooler up there. Things seem to ripen a little bit slower. Um, so the wines are just naturally going to hang out there a little bit longer and they're going to take a little bit longer to ripen than something on the valley floor or, or in the eastern hills. Um, and get the structure and the natural acidity, I think, you know, really trap those wines. And uh, they just they seem to have that, that terroir from those that hillside that you just you smell like the, the oak forest and the pine forest and the, and, and the loaminess. And it's, uh, there's just something that's distinctive about them that it's, it's very attractive. You know, they're maybe not as flashy yeah. as uh, some of the wines from from the Valley Floor, mm-hmm. and, and they, I think they've suffered, they suffer 
uh, in that in cooler years where they're not getting stuff as ripe and but if you're patient and you're able to age those wines for you know 10 20 years you're gonna the patience will be rewarded because it just takes they just take a little bit more time to be um, to come around I think yeah, yeah. how long did you stay at came how long uh, I was just a harvest intern so okay, okay. I was there probably from August to uh, November December something like that all right so, so what'd so you quick. do just tool around Napa Valley I um hitchhiking well I got a job as the as <laughs> for the irrigation management company so okay. I as soon as this vine started to grow I was working summers for them uh, and then um in the fall of 05 um because I had worked a harvest with Chris Howell who knew Helen Turley um, I had that on my resume, uh, and so she hired me as an intern at Blanquier, which is a new winery um, uh, in Yonville, just uh, just south of Oakville, a brand new, uh, the winery was still being built while I did the harvest. We were, they had the caves built, but there was no winery on the outside, it was, so it was a little, it was a rustic start, um, but I got to see Helen Turley, how she made wine, and um, that was quite another adventure, because I... At that time, like I told you, I was trying to like do something at the highest level, and I knew. Yeah, I, mean, I knew that you're working with Helen Turley, man. What the hell? What I mean, that's like. Yeah, at the time, I think even even now, she's you know considered one of the one of the best winemakers in Napa throughout the years, and very influential. Yeah. And so I w that was someone I w was I thought well, I I want to work with someone that knows um, how to make good wine. So that was a great transition there. What was she like to work with? Because, um, you uh, yeah, I mean. I would think I'd love to interview her, but like I, we there's a conversation like it's tough, you know, uh, for women in this business. I mean, but she's like badass. Like, was she like tough? She was. Did she? I mean, like, what was her? You know, you had one experience where it was French is a little bit more laid back. What was it like kind of working with Helen Tilly kind of versus like, you know, Helen? Well, well, she was the consultant, so okay. there was from the day to day there was there were people working on site. Um, but it was her protocols. I think maybe I, I, I saw her at the winery maybe five or six times yep. throughout the whole harvest. Um, but her protocols were, were pretty set in stone and followed to a T. And um, so that was that was fascinating to, to watch that. Um, and uh, she's just a, a very powerful personality. She's very tall and, uh, and opinionated. And, uh, and she's, you know, it's like when E.F. Hutton talks like when, like when, you, when she's talks. saying something <laughs> on the crush pad you listen you know you want to you want to hear her and um yeah she's uh, i'm at, I, you compare to if you don't know who helen turley is uh, i would say if you it, kind of like a julia child very imposing personality but extremely good at what they do and um and change and really kind of changed the game in a lot of ways for kyle wayne wines um Definitely. Definitely influential. Yeah, um, especially with her, her Marcus and Chardonnay is, is is always legendary. It's always great. Mm -hmm. And then she she made some of the best wines for Bryant and Colgan um, and some legendary wines from her Blam for Colgan. And, and some of those early Bryants are, are still beautiful. So, yeah, you did <coughs> so you did a year at uh, Blanquier? Uh-huh. Okay. And are they still around? Yep. Yep. Uh, a guy named Graham McDonald, uh, who was an intern with me at Colgan in 06, is now the winemaker there. He's a really great guy. And, uh, so like the mailing list Making only, amazing wines there. Are they mailing list only, super small production? With they're, sm they're small, yeah. Yeah. They're very small. Yeah. Because yeah. uh, that one escaped me. I see, I, you guys think I know a lot. I don't know a lot about wine. I never heard of that one. And I know a lot of Helen Tilly wine, so that's amazing. Um, so you did it. So that was just like one year, because in two thousand six, that's when you, you how'd you end up? So okay, so like you really just kind of just showed up in Napa, you know, going to take some classes. I didn't know a soul in Napa. I did, really didn't. There wasn't an uncle that knew somebody <laughs> that knew somebody. I didn't know anybody. Not you know, I'm not uh, saying it. 
I, I definitely had to, to work my way up for sure. Yeah. And it, there's no, I mean, it, yeah, it was, it was uh, who knows who. That's kind of almost any business is like that, but it's word of mouth. And uh, this guy knows this guy, this gal knows this gal, they recommend you. And, and so um, Marco Bear, who was the winemaker at the time at Colgan, um, he was a protege of Helen Turley. Yeah. So, um, and Marco Bear and Chris Howell were roommates way back in the after college days, maybe in college at, uh, at Davis or after Davis. And so those, that little circle of people, um, so having Helen Turley and Chris Howell on the resume got me, got me the job at Colgan because Mark, Mark knew those guys and Mark loves um, uh, Helen Turley. And so it's, that's, that's what led me to Colgan. It got me the job, at least got my foot in the door. This is pretty insane, boys and girls. <coughs> I mean, these, these names, <laughs> for you guys who don't know, you want to Google some of these people. These are big, 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 big names in the California wine business. And you know something you said I, I wholly agree with? Like, there is, in life, no matter what you do, there's a certain amount of luck and falling into the right place at the right time, meeting the right people. I've had people, I've had friends who... Um, who are well educated? Like I know this guy went to Harvard Law School. Went to, went to, went to Columbia undergrad and then went to Harvard uh, for law school, kind of like Barack Obama did, but he's not Barack Obama. And 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 said and he said every job he ever got is because he knew somebody. Like you 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 know you go into Ivy League schools and I'm sure he could have got a job, but like he knew somebody, you know. Mm -hmm. um, and I think wine is really a small world. I mean, there's it's like. You alluded to this earlier. Unless you're going to work at a, a, f a big, larger production facility for, you know, uh, you know, s supermarket wines that are cranking out tens of millions of cases, like th mm -hmm. there's not a lot of like these romantic <laughs> wine jobs out there <laughs> now. <laughs> you know? Yeah, you're right. <coughs> um, and so it's a in oh six assistant wine how so how'd you get become an assistant winemaker I, I just being in the right place at the wow. right time so mark marco bear who um <laughs> we said that was, i had to reread my notes i like <laughs> he didn't just get a job there he got named assistant winemaker <laughs> it was pretty quick it happened yeah. pretty quick uh, mark uh, at the time was consulting for a couple different wineries and his label was really taken off M mark uh, makes uh, some great chardonnays uh, yes, from sonoma does. county napa and so his label was taking off um and uh, I think Colgan wanted to designate, they didn't want a consultant winemaker, they wanted someone that was gonna be there full time. And so Allison Tozier, who had been there for I don't know, a year or two, mm -hmm. um, was promoted to winemaker and uh, we really clicked together during harvest of 06. And so she was like, hey, I, I want you to be the assistant winemaker. So um, early 07, um, I was hired as the, the assistant winemaker. It was a good transition and it, it was, it's just us making the wine. So it was just two people on the winemaking side, small little winery. We'd hired some interns for harvest, but um, and that's where I was thinking, you talk about um, education and, and that's where I was like, oh, do I need to just go to Davis and get a degree? And then moving into that position, um, I was like, oh, if I go to Davis, I'm gonna have to take two years off to get a master's and that's, I'm gonna miss two vintages. Yeah. I just couldn't imagine doing that. Like I just, I, I was like, I can't miss a vintage. Um, and so, 
I, I kind of considered Colgan would be my like PhD or my master's because I was I was learning from some of the best people, the best vineyard managers. Uh, the owners, Ann and Joe, are, are great people, and they just love wine. And they had a great wine cellar and uh, had a, a Bordeaux consultant named Alain Renault that was fun to taste with. And I thought, okay, I'm going to stick this out and, and try to – this will be my – this will be my Davis degree. You know, I won't, I'll never have that degree on my resume, but um, I'll, I'll have Colgan. That'll be my <laughs> my resume. Yeah, you know what? You could go to Juilliard, or you could have a platinum record. So, uh, you know, I mean, I guess your choice. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> you know, um, Allison, where where what was where what was like her background? Uh, she had worked at Farniette for a few years as a. Um, uh, and that's kind of was her her background. She has a UC Davis degree, so mm -hmm. that op that opened a lot of doors for her initially, um, and then was hired I think in 0405 um, after one of the assistant winemakers left, and um, she clicked with Ann and Joe, and she's a really great person, great person to work with, and um, one of the best tasters I've ever tasted with. Just a great uh, a great education because that's still like okay, I had some of the the fine wine tasting background. Um, but that having such a small team was great because we were tasting the wines in tank now and deciding I'm work I'm helping like put the blends together with the mm. team and um, again kind of you know getting that uh, you know a lot about wine is is getting that sense memory and what things taste like and when what they taste like when they're young and what they taste like when they're middle aged and what they taste like when they're old and when they're flawed and when they're good and when they're bad so. Um, Working with a small team again, you get more access to that kind of stuff. Like whereas, where if you were with a larger winery, you may never get to taste with a team unless it's a lark or you know, you know, something just happened. So that was again, mm -hmm. I was in the right place at the right time, and um, and yeah, again, it's just it's just perfect timing. And you said something earlier. <coughs> um, I know, like, or maybe I said something earlier. Um, you're kind of like a hands off. You try to use minimal intervention now um and talk about like i've only had one vineyard manager on here i need to interview more vineyard managers but like mm -hmm. talk about the importance of the vineyard manager like and you worked with david abrew so uh, a lot of people may not know who he is because they drink natural wines and uh, i just had to throw a little natural <laughs> wine shape. um but like um he's like renowned like what like what what is what does a vineyard manager do in relationship to the winemaking team? Um, again, another great question because another formative um, portion of my career is working with David and um, uh, a little background. He's a Napa kid, grew up in, in Napa um, and started his own vineyard company in the 80s. And he, what sets him apart is that he just doesn't quit. He mm -hmm. just... They don't stop until it's perfect. And when you walk into a David Avery vineyard, you know it because there's not a leaf out of place. Anything anyone else is doing in the valley, as far as uh, um, techniques, they're just light years ahead. And uh, they adapt. Anything that needs to be happened, they can move mountains to get it done. Um, just, uh, just a no-quit kind of attitude. Attention to detail um, is kind of the hallmark of an, of an Avery vineyard. Um, the planning, the the soil prep, the the viticulture, the clone selection—it's all—it's all in his head. I mean, it's just kind of one of those savants that can that can do that stuff. Um, and again, I've told you before, kind of, I was looking to do something at the highest level. Um, th 
seeing that, seeing him farm was like, ah, okay, this is what, this is, this is what I want to do. I want to do it where um, someone really cares enough to take the time to do it right. You know, you've probably heard it before. I know you've heard it on, on this podcast. It, there's nothing super complicated about making wine. There's, there's just a million little things that you have to do right. It's not rocket science, but you just have to take the time to do it because as soon as you start slacking on one thing, it's a domino effect. You know, you slack in the vineyard, you're never going to make good wine. That's where it, it really starts. You, it's hard to make good wine from, from crappy vineyards, especially if the farming is, is subpar. So you make your, as a winemaker, obviously you want to work with the best vineyards because your job's easier, right? Right. You're right. just kind of, <laughs> you're just ushering in a, a fully formed child that doesn't need much help. Um, and I, yeah, my, my kind of metaphors always seem to fail at some point, but uh, if I consider myself a, uh, an engineer, if I'm if I'm Russell Simmons, um, and, and I've got an artist coming in. You mean Rick Rubin? Oh, Rick Rubin. Yeah, that's, that's, that was <laughs> a creative genius. <laughs> but yeah, but you know, uh, some artists, you just put a guitar on them, and you don't you don't need any magic, you don't need any echo, you don't need any auto tune. You just put the mic in front of them, you record them. It's it's beautiful. I mean, that's how the best vineyards are. You just try to get them into the tank and get them in a barrel, make sure they're good and clean, and they're they're ready to go i haven't had a winemaker come on and not say listen man just what you said like my job is to not fuck the fruit up once it's picked is not fuck it up yeah because you don't want to have to put that auto tune on and uh make a purple <laughs> mega that's that is definitely <laughs> exactly let's make a purple the auto tune of the wine. it must be right or a lacrin there's a lacrin the auto tune what's a lacrin oh it disappears it's an enzyme that goes in oh shoot um oh yeah. Oh, Velcran. Velcran. Uh, yeah, Velcran. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, PR person in the corner. <laughs> Velcran. See, alacrin. Alacrin is like a drug. Probably too much late night TV drinking, smoking. What are watching. the side effects from alacrin? Well, I, I don't know. <laughs> They're not good. Usually, vomiting, something, diarrhea, and death is always Painful. a side effect of anything. Painful toes. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> um, no, that's that's super sad. You know what? This is probably a good time to take a, a break. Um, before we move on to uh, more of Chris's story. So we'll be right back, everybody, in a few seconds. Okay, we're back. Um, so we were talking about vineyard management and just like you're, you're like almost a steward for this fruit. Um, Colgan, um, people don't know, tell them it, it's kind of, it was a cult wine, right? Is it still considered like a cult wine? Like, very highly regarded by not just Parker, all the critics. I mean, it's a score that it's a wine that knocks it out the box. Um, Definitely, they've 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 done very well uh, critically over the years. And the first hundred point wine I worked on was there, and got that out of my way early on in the, in the career. And what was that like to the, like like the scores come out? So you work in you know, because it's kind of like I don't, I don't know if it's a thing, but yeah it's got to be a th it's a thing like you said you want to do something at the highest level so how do you measure that right so like, it's a thing right so like so you here you go you know it's like you it's like being in the final four right like like the scores come out like what's what's that feeling like when you're like holy shit, I, I worked i did that it's surreal i mean uh, another cool thing was was being able to like taste with robert parker um i got to do that you know this guy you know back in the restaurant days in santa fe there wasn't any internet. There wasn't any sort of place you could go and look for scores. It was like the wine spectator or the wine advocate. And, 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 and so it was a it was a paper. It, it got paper. mailed to you. Yeah, 
Yeah. I miss those days. <laughs> <laughs> and so that's kind of like, even early on trying to learn about wine, you're just desperate for information. You want to learn, you want to get it. If someone thinks they know and someone's respected and their opinion matters, you want to know what it is. And so early on, you know, Robert Parker's um, Wine Advocate was a, just a force of nature. I mean, if what he said was was the truth and the, the be all end all. And so to be able to taste with him um, and then to, 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 you know, I think our, maybe the first year I was there, the 07 got a hundred points from um, Robert Parker and it, it was exciting and it's great. It's, but it's, I imagine it's like, it's winning a Grammy or winning an Oscar. You, you enjoy it for, for like, you try to enjoy it. You definitely celebrate it for a day, but then you soon realize, Oh God, now we, we got to make it 100 I, it, every I, I, year. I know, right? Exactly. Because if you get like, a 98, like people are going to look down it's, on it. It's, it's, might, like, it's not as good. It's like that sophomore effort of the album. Like, ah, like, like you might like it more. <laughs> like, we really like, like, oh, my God, we got 100. Like, you know. And then that second album comes out, and, like, and, and the artist really likes it. And the crit, like, crit, like, critics are disappointed. And you're like, fuck you, man. We worked so hard on this <laughs> Exactly. <laughs> um, but you know what, Seth? I, I think this is cool because I think we, we are now in a generation where, where – I don't, I don't, hmm, what do I want to say here? And I'm not even being careful. I want to be accurate. Um, things like, there's, there's conversations around scores not being important and, um, uh, and in certain communities they're not. Um, I get it. I totally get it. Yeah. It's something that's evolved, you know. I think it, it, like, it was a way to, kind of learn about wines and, and, and see That's what, what somebody thought. Right. It, was, it, it was, yeah, it was, it was, I don't think people understand like how educational and how much, and I, I it's so funny. I've had like Greg Brewer's been on here. Chad Melville talked about how Parker helped him. Adam Howard Lee was just one. Like people don't understand like the reason there is a wine business day is because of people like Parker. He really pushed the cult. He made it easier for people to understand wine mm-hmm. um, in America because we keep score. We, we, we love sports. We keep score. So, we go to we go to public school, private school. You gotta take the SATs. We take we score things here, mm-hmm. and so it w- made it very made it very. Um, and I remember coming in in the business night like you just thirsty for now. So it was it was it was you had Tanzer, you had Parker, you had the wine spectator. <laughs> anyway, I'm get myself in trouble. <laughs> but those were like the big the big ones, and Tanzer was like a small guy, you know. Um, and it really helped me learn about wine. So mm-hmm. I, I just appreciate what you said there. Um, speaking of wine, what do we got? We got some reds here, man? What yeah, you are you ready for some red wine? Mm-hmm. So next, we are going to pour some. Perfect, because we got a lot of wine to taste. <laughs> I, I over poured you there. That's okay. I'll drink it. Um, I'm a professional. So we're fast forward. Well, I left leaving Colgan. Now we're at Cliff Lady. So we're doing our. We're how long were you, and how long were you at Cliff, Cliff Lady? I mean, how long, how long were you at Colgan before you went to Cliff Lab? For Wait. five years. Okay, so five years. Yeah. Um, okay, and then you go to, to, to Cliff Lady, where you are? Another, yeah, another Abreu uh, connection. So uh, when Cliff bought the property in 2002, he hired, um, he hired David to replant the vineyards. And so um, uh, David and Cliff have been... So David had been working with him since 2002. Uh, yeah, yeah, they early on. Yeah. Um, and so... Uh, when the job became available at Cliff Lady, uh, I was I had worked I had done my my time at Colgan. And I was ready. To, I felt like I was ready. That was another thing, you know. Like I didn't want to become a winemaker until I felt like I could really be the winemaker. There's, wine, the term winemaker 
you can move to Napa in two weeks. You can call yourself a winemaker. Dude, I, listen, trust. I don't even want to get into it, but there's there 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 are brands out there where people say they're winemaker, and I'm like, you're not a winemaker. I know where you got your damn bulk wine from. <laughs> you didn't make shit. <laughs> I didn't want to be one of those guys. Yeah, I, I just but I'm, to. that's I'm that guy. That's why. But but like that, you're right. Like literally, I'm like winemaker. You're not a winemaker. And it, for me, it was more almost self-serving and then i didn't want to screw up somebody's wine i didn't want to say i was a winemaker and then try to make their wine and it was horrible (laughs) that would be a nightmare for me so i wanted to make sure i knew what i was doing and i'd been at colgan for five years and um you know told uh david told cliff about me um, because he knew i was kind of looking and uh in 2012 um moved on to cliff lady and uh it was a nice transition working with david at colgan and then working with David's vineyards that he had planted for Cliff, um, it was a se- kind of a seamless transition. Same philosophy at Cliff Lady, you know, high end. We're just trying to make the best wine in the world every year, and uh, we don't quit until we've tried everything we possibly can do to to, to get that done. So, so what's in the glass right now? So um, this is one of our fun wines that we actually make. It doesn't see any distribution, but it's it's kind of uh, oh, thank direct you, for DTC. Yeah. yeah, this is uh, so Cliff is a huge classic rock fan, and so. When he bought the property and he was blending with uh, with David and and I, Michelle Rolland at the time, he Michelle Rolland was an early consultant. Wow, this guy did not screen expense. <laughs> Damn, that was an early consultant, and so he. Um, I'm sure the prices weren't that much cheaper. <laughs> <laughs> well, Cliff had you know we. We named vineyard blocks very esoteric names. Okay. Be like block A1, block A2, <laughs> B2, 3, 4. And he was like, what? Are, I don't know what that, where is that vineyard? What block is that? I have no idea. Anyway, in his mind, a great way to remember which block was to kind of name the wine after what kind of classic rock song. Okay. He, he kind of reminded him of. That was his way. And so it became kind of a thing. Like he made like a vineyard map that has like all the different rock and roll songs on it. So like our Petit Verdot, which is the you know darkest purplest wine we make, that's Purple Haze. <laughs> and we've got the, we've got this really you steep. You could have went deep purple there too. There's a couple ways you could have went there. Because <laughs> you're gonna confuse weed smokers. You say purple haze. Just saying. <laughs> <laughs> this is true. There's no weed out here. Just grapes. <laughs> <laughs> um, and there's a block in poetry that's f- super steep, and it kind of looks like a the hillside's kind of falling mm-hmm. off, and that, that's called landslide. Mm-hmm. Um, and so it was kind of a fanciful way and way to. I love it. that because I it, love music. It, it kind of turned into a wine because um, we thought we had you know the wine that didn't make poetry, which is our highest level wine, which we'll try next. Uh, we still had all this great Cabernet Sauvignon, and uh, they started doing back in I think '04 '05 was the first vintage where. Um, we took two of the best vineyard blocks that didn't make poetry, and we um, we mashed them together. So every year the wine's name will change. So this year, 2019, is Roundabout Midnight. So oh. Roundabout from the band Yes, and After Midnight, which is an old J.J. Kale song that uh, Eric Clapton covered. And so Roundabout I'm going to give you Midnight. another one. Um, Roundabout Midnight is a great uh, song by a Bay Area DJ, DJ Shadow, from his first album, Introducing DJ Shadow. You oh, should, cool. You should check that out. I'll, Definitely. I'll but anyway, but that's cool. I like So that's literally two rock and roll songs in a bottle. And yeah, and there's <laughs> kind of a fun little look. It kind of looks like a you know Marshall amp on the front. Oh, yeah. Uh, and then there's a Spinal Tap quote on the back that says, Wait. these go to 11. <laughs> if we had the Go cut- ahead, read the quote, no, please. <laughs> If, if the I camera's did, on. I, oh, I should have. Um, yeah, these go to eleven, which is the famous quote from the guitarist. Uh, I think Nigel Tufnell is his name, and uh, 
his amplifiers go to 11 instead of 10. And so 11 is, it's because it's, it's, it's one louder. I love that. Yeah. And yeah. The, I cut the capsule off. I should have shown you, but the, uh, the little dial that goes at 11 is on the top. Oh, that's so, so dope. Yeah. That's, that's a fun wine, but we, it's a, we, that's a dating, wine is that's serious. A, it's a dating wine though, right? Because how many people like, <laughs> <laughs> these, these natty kids aren't don't know they haven't watched Don't Spinal Tap. <laughs> well, they should. They really should because comedy funny is funny. Exactly. Oh my god. <laughs> yeah, that was one of the first like mockumentaries that uh, totally ever made. Classic well, you know what? I, I'm. It's it's uh, ripe and powerful, but not it's not too much. Right. This is usually kind of a riper expression. I mean, it's it's not. I mean, it it, it says it's an eleven, but it's you know, it's like a ten and a half. We still want it to be a, a serious wine. Yeah. So it's cab <laughs> labeled Cabernet, but we there's a little Merlot, Cab Franc, and Petit Verdot there as well. And so that's kind of a fun wine. Mm. So, okay. So it was an Abreu hookup. That's how we got over there. Right? Exactly. All right. And um, what's it like? Who did you take over from? Just curious. There's a gentleman named Kale Anderson who had been there. I know Kale. Yeah, Kale uh, was the winemaker there for um, uh, about two years before leaving because okay. he had worked under Michelle Edwards, which is the winemaker previous to me, mm -hmm. who had been there for a couple of years. Um, and then when Cliff, uh, Cliff hired me on, he again, he didn't want any consultants or anything mm -hmm. like that. He just wanted a full-time winemaker. So um, luckily enough, uh, he trusted me enough to, to come on board without any Michelle Lalonde or um, – any board of consultants, or anything <laughs> like that. <laughs> any any lawyers or accountants or anything like that. No. So what's it? So, like you said, um, that you wanted to do things at a high level and you you wanted to make sure you were ready to be an actual winemaker. Um, what's it like stepping into a program though that did come off the ground? Like you know who the vineyard manager are, you know who the initial consultant was. What was it? Um, what were you feeling um, when? You said yes. It was great. It felt like an like a, an easy transition for me, um, and the, I think the, probably the best thing that happened was that I inherited the poetry vineyard, um, in its in its infant stage. You know, it just most of it had been replanted in 0507. so I inherited this amazing site. Uh, we should talk a little bit about the poetry. I was going to ask you. I yeah, that was my. Story. I was like, so you keep saying poetry vineyard, which I haven't heard of. Where where in Napa Valley? Is the, the uh, is uh, Cliff Lady um, located? Vineyard located, and where's this poetry vineyard you so keep talking about? We are in the northernmost section of Stag's Leap District, Appalachian, the ABA, and so we are on the Yonville Crossroad. If you took the Yonville Crossroad all the way over to the Silverado Trail, we're in that little section of, <coughs> of Stag's Leap District. So, mm -hmm. um, our estate Twin Peaks Vineyard, where our winery is located, um, it's about 30 acres. It's planted uh, all Bordeaux varieties, um, and then. Um, about 400 yards to the east is a steeped terraced hillside vineyard called the Poetry Vineyard. Um, and that is rhyolitic soils, uh, very shallow uh, rooting, very hard for the vines to penetrate. So the resulting clusters are very small. The berries are very small. The wine just is so concentrated and, and powerful on its own. Um, and so I inherited as a winemaker that, that vineyard very young. Um, our state vineyard, Twin Peaks, called Twin Peaks because it's located beneath two little uh, peaks that are located kind of in the off off center of the valley, um, and they'll be. I wanted to be because he loved the TV show, but <laughs> damn it, David Lynch fan. <laughs> yeah. I'm not sure. Want to be a David Lynch fan? <laughs> <laughs> um, 
Um, but the cool thing about uh, having the vineyards planted there is that even though we're kind of in the valley floor, we really get this kind of alluvial fans that have been worn away off those hillsides. So mm -hmm. very well draining, very rocky, very gravelly, killer spot for Cabernet Sauvignon. Um, and uh, just makes powerful wines with uh, beautiful tannins, fresh acidity, natural acidity, um, and just a great, great little, it's almost like a sub, sub AVA in that where we're not in that expansive plain south of us that gets a little bit wide and a little bit deeper soils. We're very, we're very shallow soils, very rocky, and uh, it's a great, uh, happy to make wine off those vineyards any day. They're just great, perfect, perfect situation in the valley. Early on, you mentioned protocols. So um, you started in 2012. So what was your first release? Uh, what was your first uh, release vintage that wines that you? The 2012. I started in August of 2012. So that was the first vintage that I kind of made from, okay. from, from, from grapes. To okay. So that went out in what, 14 or? Exactly. Okay. Yeah. So like kind of what, kind of share share some of your protocols because uh, in, your, in your intro bio, uh, says, you know, you have philosophy of low yield, select sites, minimal intervention, and avant-garde. Yeah, I, I think, you know, part of my um, part of my education and, and, you know, like I said earlier, we're, we're all trying to learn as much as we can and trying to not get as Not all of us. Not all of us, <laughs> but that, at least some of us care a little no, bit to keep <laughs> learning. Yeah. But I think when I, when I was at Colgan, I kind of thought, you know what, I I think my future's here in Napa, okay. and um, I think it's Cabernet Sauvignon because that's what I've, I've, I've I mean, trained on the last few years. If you're working at Colgan, <laughs> you might have a future in this thing, kid. But I thought, you know, gosh, you know, I need, I kind of need, you know, in my English, um, in my English, my art history kind mm -hmm. of background, you kind of the the idea is that you develop a connoisseurship. You know, if you're gonna write, if you're gonna be a great writer, or you're gonna judge writing. You need to have read the great wine, mm -hmm. great books, mm -hmm. uh, and then in, in art, you need to see the great works mm -hmm. of what pe other people consider the great mm -hmm. works of art. Mm -hmm. um, and you kind of need to have that in your, if you're going to critique something, you should have that connoisseurship in your background. And so I thought, I need to do that with wine. So I need to go back and uh, taste all the great wines of California. And so I kind of set off to go to auctions and, and really buy up some of the, at that time, you could still buy. 74 Mayakamas for like, you know, 75 bucks at these auctions in San Francisco that were that were bought by some doctor or lawyer in San Francisco, maintained in their cold cellar in the cold, foggy cellars of San Francisco. So great provenance. And and, and, and that's where I really went back and you know, thought, I need to study these wines. So I tasted all the great uh, 60s and 70s Heights Martha's Vineyard, the great Mayakamas from the late 60s all the way through to the late 70s. The old Chapelets um, from Peter, uh, excuse me, Philip Togney, and um, and I could go on and on. The Sovereigns from well, Lee Stewart. <laughs> Please go on and on. Um, <laughs> yeah, I needed to have those kind of. I needed to know what those taste like because I wanted to make wines like that. I wanted to make, make wines that age. I wanted to know that we could make great wines in California too. And that was kind of like I went back and studied that, and I, I was like, jeez. If you've ever had a chance to try the 69 Chapelet or or the 74 Mycomas, I've had they're they're life changing. I've I mean, had 74 they, Heights Marthas a couple times. Yep, had 85 Heights Marthas was another one. Um, any any Heights from any Marthas listen, from any year is listen pretty damn good. Kevin's really brought me a 68 because I'm born in 1968, uh -huh. which is not even a good vintage. I was like, what, he's like, what's your birthday? I was like, I hope he's bringing the Vega. Um, and he brought the Heights Martha, and it was. 
impeccable. Yeah. I mean, he fucked the cork up. It's slow. <laughs> I didn't know he's. I mean, he didn't. He, he didn't bring. He didn't bring an Osso. He didn't bring a Duran. And like literally, like, I'll, I'll it looked like a crime scene. Like, like he just like, <laughs> and there was cork in my thing. We, you know, we. But it was. But but it was there. It was the color was there. It, it looked like weather. Omaha Beach. On, yeah. On, on, yeah. 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 Totally. It, it did. It did. Yeah. Mayhem. But like it had everything that Heights Martha's Vineyard is supposed to have. It had the eucalyptus. It had just the dark. Oh, it was so good. Mm -hmm. So I was gonna. So y you you are you've become a collector of these wines. But I just find it interesting that you, like you said, it came out of your education in art and English that you felt it necessary to do classes because nowadays. And we live in a time where you can be an instant expert and you can skip ahead. You can, um, there has become, oh, there's become a commodification of wine education, in my opinion, mm -hmm. um, with bodies handing out, you know, certificates. And, but like, you were driven, like, on your own dime. And like I said, they weren't, I mean, those bottles were like three dollars on the lease, so I mean, it, it, it was they did appreciate, but like <laughs> it's nothing like like you know you work in Napa where they go, it's my first vintage, I'm making eighteen hundred bottles, I'm selling them in three packs, and they're six hundred dollars a bottle, right? Like, yeah. but but like, what was it about those wines that I think you alluded, but like, uh, can you d dive a little deeper on like? Because people, like I said, you may worked on hundred point wine, but like you went way back to go see because all those wines are like. 12 and a half, you, you might catch a ripe year, 13.5. Those are way different wines. For sure. Um, and that definitely has changed my style over time. You know, um, with the Colt era in like the early 2000s to mid, even like late as like 2009, 2010, a lot of those wines were um, definitely higher alcohol. Um, and that's some one thing I've changed over over the course of my time at Cliff Lady is I've really brought the alcohol levels down over, over time to get more of that balance. Because I think if... If the alcohol level is too high, it's definitely going to fall out of balance. And um, it just requires that you have customers and, and educating your customers mm. about these aren't going to be fruit bombs right out of the gate. You're going to have to age these a little bit to really see their full potential. And if people are willing to like take the ride with you, then they're going to be rewarded with you know some amazing wines. And so um, one of the things I've tried to do is just you know harvest earlier um, when the grapes are on their earlier side with the I've never added a drop of tartaric acid or anything. I really want the acidity to be fresh and natural. And, um, and I, you know, the big thing in, in with, especially with, you know, as things are evolving in the, in the climate, just to protect the fruit as much as possible with shade cloth and, and, and better, um, uh, canopy management and just really sh trying to get the grapes not so exposed and let them, uh, you know, hang out as long as possible. But not until they taste like raisins, because raisins from Napa taste just like raisins from Lodi or Spain. <laughs> or a raisin is a raisin. A ra is there's a raisin no terroir in a, a raisin. raisin. <laughs> there's no terroir in a raisin. Like that. But what if it's done a, a passamentia style? <laughs> Still a raisin. It's a dried grape. <laughs> maybe, it, maybe it goes around the moon at that point and becomes terroir again. You'll have to ask the Italians on that. I, don't know. I can't speak for them. Um, Epic vintages, so, so the twelve, like what, what like, so uh, 
What are some like 14? Was that a good vintage for Napa? Twelves were great. Thirteens yeah. were great. Fourteen, I really love. Although that's probably an earlier evolving vintage. I think that you know you may not age those for 30, 40 years. But um, 05 is a drought year, but super concentrated wines. Those wines still still need time. Um, 16, very ripe year, in my in my honest opinion, it's probably my least favorite vintage. That's even though it's probably the highly it's highly mo- rated. one of the most highly rated. Was 2016 across California. To me, a lot of those wines are very overblown and kind of maybe it, it might take them if they ever come around. It might be 30 years from now. Um, I I think 17s some of our best wines we've made because um, we picked early before the heat really came and and destroyed everything um, and the fires. Oh, uh, so, yeah. So like how first. What's the next wine? This yeah. Is delicious. And and while you're you're and talking about that, we are going to do an 09 poetry. So 09? I did not make. Did you say so. 2009? Yes. So wow. a little So this would have been grapes from the poetry vineyard wow. when, when they're just know, tiny. I know I'm going to like this already cuz this is the color of a wine. Tiny infants. When I, when I, when a wine is this this color, I'm like I'm like, "Oh, it's a little satisfying. It's good." Mm. It's, it's more savory. It's got some sour stuff going on. Mm. All right. So, you know, the poetry vineyard is is unique in that it doesn't really, you know, like Tokalon right out of the gate, it's just very flowery and violets and right. loam, and it's just kind of accessible really early on. Poetry vineyard, just because I think because of its terroir, its earth, it's um, the vines are just, the roots are just struggling to get into that that rhyolitic uh, soil that's and in the like I said it was mentioned earlier it's just very concentrated and it just tends to need 10 15 years in the bottle mm. before it really starts to get its perfume and they really come out yeah um, and you get that Margot mm-hmm. floral wow. aroma mm. again mostly Cabernet but a little Merlot Franc and Petit Verdot in there as well wow See for me, <coughs> this isn't a good place. So it's what well, fourteen years old. Yeah, um, not still that old. St- not that old, relatively to be honest. Yeah. But still got an abundance of fruit. But like I said, more savor on the nose. The savory notes are really just coming through. And I don't know what this color is. I, tr- probably, probably, I could probably Google it. <laughs> but whether I don't care what grape it is, like. Like I get this in Rhone wines. Like whenever, when it's like this, this kind of this color right here, I'm like, I'm gonna like this, and it, it has never not delivered. Um, so you didn't work on this one, but you have access to you got the keys to the library. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. And so, why'd you choose this one? Have you had this before? Uh, we because of the fires in 2020, we didn't make any wine. We didn't we didn't make oh, yeah. any, so release I any wine. So what we've done wow. is gone back and um, we've kind of hit the library a little bit and we put together you know, some six pack verticals. So this was a wine that was included in some of the verticals Gosh. that went out to some of our distributors to kind of take the place of missing a vintage. And so the 2019, which we can taste next, will come out this fall. So this was kind of a wine that we we've tasted a lot recently just because it's. It's kind of gone back out there, and that's why we brought it today. Talk about the fires. Was the winery ever in danger, or just smoke taint is why you didn't uh, release uh, wines? We were um, – the fires were closer to us, to the winery in 2017, but um, the winery was never um, in serious danger. Well, I, you know, 
It did. It, it didn't. I mean, if, if you don't live in California, out, re- relatively, people <laughs> exactly. don't, I, that's a California term. Like, I know, you know what I mean? Like, <laughs> yeah. Um, the north of the north and central part of the valley um, uh, got it hard in 2020. Um, but we felt like the early August fire was really just destroyed the grapes pretty, pretty early on. And so we d- made the decision not to, not to, uh, not to make any wine. Which is that is like, is that like, like a forfeit, like in little, like, is that a bummer? Like you don't get to make wine. Yeah. I mean, I, I understand why you wouldn't do it. It makes sense. But like as a winemaker, it's kind of like, it's gotta be like, that's gotta hurt not to get to make wine. That you year. get one chance a year. It's <laughs> yeah. brutal. We just like work. And then you're like, it's not like we worked any less farming the grapes. Right. We worked just as hard, and then to have to not not make the wine is it was was, was brutal, and then you have the financial ramifications about not not having a vintage to sell, but we thought the ramifications of trying to sell people wine that tasted like an ashtray would do way more financial damage to our reputation that we've tried so hard to work and build over the years that it, it was kind of an easy decision in some ways. Mm-hmm. Like, I mean. Imagine how how bad you would feel spending 300 bucks on a, a wine that tasted like an ashtray. And I then uh, if you sold it to a restaurant, then the restaurant's reputation looks poor because you've now they're, – they're not happy with their meal because their wine tastes like crap and they've spent – you know, it's just there's a whole domino effect. Mm-hmm. And then it's a time bomb too because some people are going to age that for 5, 10, 15, 20 years and they're going to call up the winery and be like, what the hell? Yeah. We're like, that was 20 years ago. <laughs> but we, so we'll never have to answer any of those phone calls. Yeah. That we'll never have to deal with that. We're, we're lucky in that not everyone is as lucky as, as us to be able to make that decision. I mean, there's a lot of wine on the market that's got smoke taint on it right now. But um, it's a testament to Cliff and, and his, his um, desire to just put out the best. And so that's, as, someone, as a winemaker, that's all you can ask for is someone that can be supportive like that. Because ultimately, it's my call. If, he, if I say the wine's crap, then he's going to be like, all right, we're, we're not selling it. So well, That's cool. Yeah. That's cool. And so... What are like? There's not. It's never a typical vintage, but like, w- you worked in irrigation management. We all, we we know water's an issue in California. We know fires are an issue. What what is kind of like with you guys? Are there any other things that you typically know you're going to have to manage? I mean, obviously, there's always the curveball, but are there things you you always have to manage uh, where you're located with the vineyards and stags leave. Um, you know, I think the one thing that we've changed is when we're replanting. Um, we're putting in some more drought-resistant rootstocks, mm-hmm. um, and we're opening up the canopy quite a bit to get a little bit more protection. Um, so, and then anything we possibly can alter that for our current vineyards, we're kind of putting in more trellising and 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 trellising that'll that'll be a little bit more protective because we are, you know, in 17 and 20, we got to see, um, you know, a week of heat that's kind of unprecedented, and we we want to get to a place where we can react and with every tool we possibly can with shade cloth and um, and just just more uh, drought resistant rootstocks that can handle that, those kind of heat waves that kind of come through because chances are it's going to happen more and more over the over the coming decades what happened with you guys last year when did you did you did you pick like we picked as fast as we possibly can when like I saw the heat wave coming okay. we, we picked our entire vintage in two weeks so we were we didn't have any we had maybe a couple blocks that were hanging out in the hottest part of the week mm-hmm. um, but we picked um, everything we were finished with harvest on September 16th which is just unprecedented um, I made it, it 17 was a very learning experience because we had three two or three days of 115 degree heat Jesus. and as soon as I went out 
and felt the grapes that night. Like, it was one night. It was uh, it was about eight o'clock, nine o'clock at night. We were done sorting, and I went out to the vineyard and I just touched a cluster, and I was like, oh man. It felt like it just came out of the microwave or something. <laughs> I said, "We're picking everything as fast as we can," and we did that because it's not—if it's not getting better, it's getting worse. There's that adage, and so we we did that. We did that in 17. I think that some of the best wines we've ever made are in 2017, which is considered just you know like really hard, tough, tough, tough vintage. Um, we also have a really good optical sorter in the winery, which helps us really just get anything that's little raisin or anything never makes it in a tank. So that's one of the tools that we were we're lucky to have. And then a highly, you know, highly trained staff and, and a great winery to make the wine is another a tool that we have that not everyone gets to have. Um, and so that's another little thing that helps us keep consistently good vintages coming out now in the tougher years. I heard you make some of your own wine. You make a little something something. This is true. <laughs> this is true. Yes. Tell me, tell me about what you're doing, man. Um, well, since 2011, um, when the first year I started my wine, um, I found a little vineyard up in the hills above St. Helena mm-hmm. um, that were vines planted in 1970, dry farmed. Um, oh. And they, uh, I've made that wine ever since. Um, and was very, again, very lucky to have... Um, some good critical success early on from from What's Robert it? Parker. I'm sorry. What was the name of your wine? I'm just, it's my it's my name. It's Christopher Tynan Wines. Oh, I think I've seen that. I think I have seen that. I haven't had it yet, but that's cool. Okay. Wow. Yeah. So um, very small production. I do about 125 cases of Cab every year, and then I make some Syrah from. You make Syrah, and you didn't bring me Syrah. I'm the, next. I'm time. a Rome guy. I got always leave. I mean, them, I love, always I, leave them wanting more. You I, there you go. Um, you get a chance to come back. Yeah, exactly. I gotta come visit you. I gotta come out to Napa. Yes. Come, come, come raid that cellar of yours with all your. You were just out there for the. Uh, I was in Sonoma. I know. Yeah, my, you were. My wife was on one of those panels. That. Uh, oh, who's your wife? Katie. Katie Bunchu. That's your wife. Yeah. Shut oh, up. Yeah. yeah. Oh yeah, she was yeah. like, we need a slick New York marketing guy. I tell her I'm serious. I said I'm looking for a job, <laughs> Katie. Give me California. Give me a job. There you go. Yes. No. Oh, that's so cool. Okay. Oh my God. Guys, you see how dumb I am? I tell you, I'm not. I'm dumb. I know this is life. Yes, she was awesome on that panel. But that's Sonoma. Yeah, so I make some Syrah from Sonoma from the judge. Well, we had Artie, and Artie didn't. You know, Artie, it was a Grenache thing, and Artie was hip there. Artie yeah. Johnson was really using Syrah because Phil farmed it. So. There you go. Yeah. yeah, Artie's great. So you make a little Syrah. Okay, right on. Yeah, yeah. Um, and then I've expanded production. Uh, my newest release is coming out. Uh, my 20, I, I kind of go old school and I don't release, I kind of release much later than most people. So my 2018s will come out this year. Um, oh, wow. Great you're, vintage. You're going, you are old school. Okay. Yeah. Well, I don't want to release it unless it's, it's perfect. So I can, I'll, there's always a chance. That time in Spain. Exactly. <sighs> exactly. Uh, 2019 poetry is the last one. Okay. Just poured you. So. And this is just now hitting the market here, right? It, this fall. This It'll fall. come out in August, September. So if there's a reason to do a podcast, it's to get to taste wines early. I think it's one of the best wines I've ever made. Um, oh, I love it. It's still, you know, it's a baby. We should have decanted it for a couple hours before, but but you'll get you can try the bottle over the next few yeah, hours. Yeah, I'll take it home with me, and I'll just I'll stick something, and I'll just decant it and just sip on it and. I have it with a cheeseburger. That's the best combination for your wine. Just yeah. I make a cheeseburger and fries, and have your cab. <laughs> You've made it. 
you've made it in life. You guys, there's Weimer because they're like, it's true. Thanks for thanks for that that burger shot, MJ. Um, <laughs> <laughs> so why do you think this is the best wine you ever made? Uh, you know, it's. I think it's me. It. Um, being a better winemaker and having a great vintage, it was. I mean, it's a very forgiving vintage as well. I think if you made bad wine in 2019, you're probably, you probably hang up your winemaker boots. And well, that is good. Try something else. It's not even decanted. That is good. Yeah, and I wow. think I think the vineyard. It's it's a little bit of the vineyard getting a little older Pencil too. Pencil lead. Yeah. The graphite. Mm. And I think it's kind of getting closer to where, um, in my mind, with those great wines that we talked about, like getting in more in that balance and and uh, in more of that direction that I really want those wines to be and um, and everything kind of came together that vintage so I think it's done except for the 2021s which we're about to bottle in in June I, in June and July so I think those those, those are gonna be the best wines ever made <laughs> <laughs> as they should be for a guy who always is about um, being uh, creating the best possible or having the best striving always learning that makes sense yeah um, so, and and this and uh, I'm I'm buzzing guys because we had four wines and they're really good. And <laughs> we don't have a dump bucket. <coughs> Only had an egg salad sandwich before I came in. So, um, <laughs> just being honest. Um, but you're from Jersey. I love. Is that your excuse? Can you That's just throw that excuse. in no matter what happens? Oh yeah, yeah. It's I get like, pulled it's, over it's, 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 for yeah. it get, you're, you're getting a ticket. Hey, I'm of Jersey. Hey, I'm I from drive Jersey. fast. That's what you want. I mean, what? I'm like. Is there anything I'm sorry, you can't say? I'm sorry, uh, California Highway Patrol Officer <laughs> John Poncherello, <laughs> but I'm from fucking Jersey. <laughs> you know, my black ass would be like so beat up by the cops. Oh no! <laughs> oh no! <laughs> um, no. Um, What's in this? Like, so I, you said it's always a blend of something. So what's kind of what's in a blend in this? Yeah, um, mostly cab. I think this vintage. Don't ask me the percentages. Okay. I think it's probably eighty something yeah, cab, I mean, I mean, something more five merlot, five franc, uh, and some some PV. Okay. Um, oh. It just uh, it was you know in, in kind of you know merlot for us has always been kind of a juicy mid palate kind of uh, kind of you know merlot always has that kind of to say but it's kind of cashmere kind of tannin and in cooler years where cabernet doesn't get as ripe as we want merlot is perfect for just getting you know keep making that more seamless but california especially like 19 the cabernets on their own were just so perfumed and beautiful that yeah you know less less merlot is needed um whereas in you know the left bank of bordeaux they're struggling to get cabernet ripe most years well not since the last few years have been pretty hot but um merlot is you know is you know it's always 40 plus percent on those left bank wines. So they need that below a little bit more than we do. They do. That's why and I it like, works. That's it why works I like right bank wines exactly. more. Exactly. That, that is a place for going below. It totally. <clears throat> um, so we got a few minutes left and um, play a, a game right now. I just have to say, you're, you're a great interviewer. I mean, I listen to a lot of wine podcasts and you just balance good questions. <laughs> and I think you... You, you might have missed your calling as kind of a late night host. Um, or a well, I'm working that way, but I definitely it's funny you say that. I remember um, wanting to be a VJ on MTV back in the day. But like I I'm a dumbass. I never like I lived right down the road. I should have went to MTV and been and did what you did pay your dues and be an intern. and You could do this shit. 
Oh, Mar- I never Mar- did Martha that. Quinn wasn't a Rhodes Scholar. I don't think she. No, was she was not. You could have been. A, <coughs> um, but I'm not dead yet. I mean, I, I, I do. I think I'm about twelve years behind Bourdain. But I remember, I literally, like, I'm like, literally, and he was like, uh, you know, he was like, I was 44. I'm Dunkin' Fries. Like that's me. Like I was working for a nonprofit two years ago, and I was doing good work, but it wasn't, you know, this kind of was here, but you know, fucking took a pandemic for me to really start doing some shit for myself <laughs> so thank you i really appreciate that it means yeah. a lot well you're scraping the bottom of the barrel with whatever you need so if you can make me sound interesting oh my god man you know you're no i'm that. not scraping about listen I, <laughs> I, I i'm just grateful i mean there's listen i get pitched a lot of people <laughs> and i say no to most people okay <laughs> all right so um and uh, I, I don't know there was just something I saw. I was like, oh yeah, I want to sit down with that guy. Um, so this is a game, and um, shout out to uh, my girl Brooke Sobel gave me this. She's like, you need to do this. She was on the podcast. She used to work for Gary's. You might, you might, you might know, you might know Brooke. Mm. Um, FMK. Uh huh. I know what that means. Fuck Mary Kill. Yep. Three grapes. <laughs> Can one of them be Zinfandel? Nope. <laughs> Damn. And like I wrote some down, but then like after I talked to you, I'm like, I'm gonna change the fucking grapes on this oh, motherfucker. No. <laughs> All right, so <sighs> um, we have Albarino. Oh jeez. <laughs> Mencia. Oh no. And. Yeah, fuck it. Uh, Cabernet Sauvignon. Oh, man. Because he's fucked. He's, he, he makes Cabernet Sauvignon, but, like, <laughs> Mencia is, re- is really good. <laughs> it's like uh, And Albarino. So he's talking about, like, yeah, I hiked across Spain. It was so awesome. <laughs> we had octopus. And now, who are you fucking? Who are you marrying? Who are you killing? Albarino, Mencia. Actually, I'll make it easier for you. I'll do it. I'll, 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 I'll throw you a bone. Albarino, Mencia. And Tempranillo. I'll just take you back to Spain so you don't have to. Why right? did that make it harder for you? jeez. Uh, <laughs> mm-hmm. Now it's a s- – oh, jeez. <laughs> Let's just say something because there's no right or wrong answer there here. There isn't, no. Um, I think I'm going to – I'm going to marry Albarino. Mm. And I'm going to F – Mencia. Of course you are. I was like, I, I, of course you are. You, you gotta kill. You gotta kill off. And unless Rioja starts making wines without American oak, I'm just gonna kill. Yeah. yeah. Kill. Yeah. Kill those American oak Riojas because yeah. I, I, I just have not have. Uh, I don't enjoy those wines. American. Yeah. Some of the new producers that are coming yeah, out there, they aren't you know, doing so, so much. You new just American said oak it, this, amazing. It, this goes to eleven. Sorry. That's what American oak does. It takes everything to like twelve. <laughs> amps it up. Exactly. Um, Chris, what are you most excited about for the future? Oh, jeez. I'm going to um, say, uh, I don't know, I just in, just enjoy, I really just enjoy making wine, mm-hmm. and so I'm looking forward to uh, making future vintages. There's all, I mean, you never know what you're going to get. It's always a, a, a new story for every vintage, and um, I'm excited about watching my son grow up. That's just pretty cool. That's yeah, pretty that's cool. That's been an amazing part of my life. I said that earlier, but it's, it's hard to say anything's better than that. Yeah, and we talked about you talked about going back to your Santa Fe days. I, I I don't know if it was Santa Fe. It could be 
uh, in your study of uh, older California wines, but what's the bottle of wine? Actually, two questions. First one, back to Santa Fe. What was the bottle of wine that started off for you? Like you, someone came in or you had a bottle of wine. You're like, ah, there's something here for me. Ooh, there was one Chateauneuf that one of the distributors took me out to lunch and uh, I, I thought, God, I didn't know wine could taste like that. Mm -hmm. You know, Grenache is a, I love the Southern Rhone. I love the Rhone. Anything in the Rhone. I'm now we're now fan. we're now we're friends for life, bro. Man, it was it was like it, it was Chateau Lenerth, which is not a. a I know Lenerth. Yeah, they're not like they're not. They've never blown my doors off, but something about there's just a you know you know when Grenache hits you, it's mm -hmm. like oh man, it was just perfect time. Um, and then another time, another one of those another aha moments was um, my buddy and I were we invited these two gals up for dinner. We were like, we're gonna cook them dinner. Where I, I was like, I'll bring the wine and you cook because he was a better cook. We're gonna be smooth. Oh yeah, we're gonna, we're gonna <laughs> romance these ladies. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> and so I brought um, it was a bottle of a '96 Gruet Champagne from France, not the not the New Mexico Gruet. I was like, I was like we're, going back, we're going back to we're going back to Santa Fe not days. That okay. one, no. <laughs> same uh, same family, yep. but different, but actually sh French Champagne. And then, and then the next one was a, a Mondavi I Block Tokolon. Mm. Fumé Blanc mm -hmm. um, from 98 or 97, something like that. And then we had a 96, oh, God, what was it? Um, it was a Silver Oak, but it was the Alexander Valley mm -hmm. Silver Oak. Mm -hmm. And then we had a um, Ramon Lafone, um, uh, excuse me, Sauterne from 96. Um, and I remember all of those wines that we had that night. And I, d I can't tell you what the name of the girl was. <laughs> I was so, I was so fascinated with the wines, and I like it just perfect, you know. That so that that tells you a little bit about me. Ah, uh, that's the best. That's it. We're done. Mic drop. <laughs> Chris, thank you so much for coming here, sitting down with me, sharing some wine, sharing your story. Uh, tell people where they can find you, how they can be a part of what you're doing. Well, you can go to cliffladyvineyards.com or Google us, and then uh, my label's christopertynanwines.com, since you mentioned that, um, christopertynan.com. And then uh, find us uh, walking around the, the United States selling wine. And, <laughs> and please come to Napa and visit us. It's a great experience at the winery. It's really fun. Awesome. And for all my listeners, don't forget to check out the show notes for uh, each episode. That's where you'll find info on the wines we drank, uh, links to the cool things we discussed. So I'll put the links to Cliff Lady and uh, Chris's wines and so much more. So until the next time, cheers to the Mavericks, philosophers, deep thinkers, and all you wine drinkers. It's your boy MJ saying peace. Thank you so much for listening. I hope you learned something. You had some fun while you were here. Please subscribe to the podcast and give us a five-star review on whatever platform you're listening to. And if you want to be an insider and get special content, make sure you go over to blackwineguy.com and get on our email list. <laughs>